Chapter 12 of The Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cassiopeia Sparks. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Marie Roche. Chapter 12, Part 2. The evening was far advanced when Oscar reached the orchard and leaning on his servant slowly walked up the hill. Had a spectre appeared before the old lady, she could not have seemed more shocked than she now did at the unexpected and emaciated appearance of her young friend. With all the tenderness of a fond mother, she pressed his cold hands between her own and, and seated him by the cheerful fire which blazed on her hearth, then procured him refreshments that, joined to her conversation, a little revived his spirits. Yet at this moment the recollection of the first interview he ever had with her recurred with pain to his heart. "'Our friends at Woodlawn, I hope,' cried he. He paused, but his eye expressed the inquiry his tongue was unable to make. "'They are well and happy,' replied Mrs. Marlowe. "'And you know, I suppose, of all that has lately happened there?' "'No, I know nothing. I am as one awoke from the slumbers of the grave.' "'Ere I inform you, then,' cried Mrs. Marlowe, "'let me, my noble Oscar, express my approbation.' my admiration of your conduct, of that disinterested nature which preferred the preservation of constancy to the splendid independency offered to your acceptance. What splendid independency did I refuse? asked Oscar, wildly staring at her. That which the general offered. The general? Yes, and appointed a Colonel Belgrave to declare his intentions. Oh, heavens! exclaimed Oscar, starting from his chair. Did the general indeed form such intentions? And has Belgrave then deceived me? He told me my attentions to Miss Honeywood were noticed and disliked. He filled my soul with unutterable anguish, and persuaded me to a falsehood which has plunged me into despair. He is a monster, cried Mrs. Marlowe, and you are a victim to his treachery. Oh, no! I will fly to the general and open my whole soul to him. At his feet, I will declare the false ideas of honor which misled me. I shall obtain his forgiveness, and Adela will yet be mine. Alas, my child, cried Mrs. Marlowe, stopping him as he was hurrying from the room. It is now too late. Adela can never be yours. She is married, and married unto Belgrave. Oscar staggered back a few paces uttered a deep groan, and fell senseless at her feet. Mrs. Marlowe's cries brought in his servant, as well as her own, to his assistance. He was laid upon a bed, but it was long ere he showed any signs of recovery. At length, opening his heavy eyes, he sighed deeply and exclaimed, "'She is lost to me forever!' The servants were dismissed, and the tender-hearted Mrs. Marlowe knelt beside him. Oh, my friend, said she, my heart sympathizes in your sorrow, but it is from your own fortitude, more than my sympathy, you must now derive resources of support. Oh, horrible, to know the cup of happiness was at my lips, and that it was my own hand dashed it from me. Such, alas, said Mrs. Marlowe, sighing, as if touched at the moment with a similar pang of self-regret, is the waywardness of mortals. Too often do they deprive themselves of the blessings of a bounteous providence 
by their own folly and imprudence. Oh, my friend, born as you were with a noble ingenuity of soul, never let that soul again be sullied by the smallest deviation from sincerity. Do not aggravate my sufferings, said Oscar, by dwelling on my error. No, I would sooner die than be guilty of such barbarity. But admonition never sinks so deeply on the heart as in the hour of trial. Young, amiable as you are, life teems, I doubt not, with various blessings to you, blessings which you will know how to value properly, for early disappointment is the nurse of wisdom. Alas! exclaimed he, what blessings! These, at least, cried Mrs. Marlowe, are in your own power, the peace, the happiness, whichever proceeds from a mind conscious of having discharged the incumbent duties of life and patiently submitted to its trials. "'But do you think I will calmly submit to his baseness?' said Oscar, interrupting her. "'No. Belgrave shall never triumph over me with impunity.' He started from the bed, and rushing into the outer room, snatched his sword from the table on which he had flung it at his entrance. Mrs. Marlowe caught his arm. "'Rash young man!' exclaimed she. "'Whither would you go? Is it to scatter ruin and desolation around you?' Suppose your vengeance was gratified. Would that restore your happiness? Think you that Adela, the child of virtue and propriety, would ever notice the murderer of her husband? How unworthy soever that husband might be. Or that the old general who so fondly planned your felicity would forgive, if he could survive, the evils of his house occasioned by you. The sword dropped from the hand of the trembling Oscar. I have been blamable, cried he, in allowing myself to be transported to such an effort of revenge. I forgot everything but that, and as to my own life, deprived of Adela, it appears so gloomy as to be scarcely worth preserving. Mrs. Marlowe seized this moment of yielding softness to advise and reason with him. Her tears mingled with his, as she listened to his relation of Belgrave's perfidy, tears augmented by reflecting that Adela, the darling of her care and affections, was also a victim to it. She convinced Oscar, however, that it would be prudent to confine that fatal secret to their own breasts. The agitation of his mind was too much for the weak state of his health. The fever returned, and he felt unable to quit the cottage. Mrs. Marlowe prepared a bed for him, trusting he would soon be able to remove. But she was disappointed. It was long ere Oscar could quit the bed of sickness. She watched over him with maternal tenderness, while he, like a blasted flower, seemed hastening to decay. The general was stung to the soul by the rejection of his offer, which he thought would have inspired the soul of Oscar with rapture and gratitude. Never had his pride been so severely wounded, never before had he felt humbled in his own eyes. His mortifying reflections the colonel soon found means to remove by the most delicate flattery and the most assiduous attention, assuring the general that his conduct merited not the censure, but the applause of the world. The sophistry which can reconcile us to ourselves is truly pleasing. The colonel gradually became a favorite, and when he insinuated his attachment for Adela, was assured he should have all the general's interest with her. He was now more anxious than ever to have her advantageously settled. There was something so humiliating in the idea of her being rejected that it drove him at times almost to madness. The colonel possessed all the advantages of fortune. 
but these weighed little in his favor with the general, whose notions we have already proved very disinterested, and much less with his daughter. On the first overture about him, she requested the subject might be entirely dropped. The mention of love was extremely painful to her. Wounded by her disappointment in the severest manner, her heart required time to heal it, her feelings delicacy confined to her own bosom, but her languid eyes and faded cheeks denoted their poignancy. She avoided company, and was perpetually wandering through the romantic and solitary paths which she and Oscar had trod together. Here more than ever she thought of him, and feared she had treated her poor companion unkindly. She saw him oppressed with sadness, and yet she had driven him from her by the repulsive coldness of her manner, a manner, too, which from its being so suddenly assumed could not fail of conveying an idea of her disappointment. This hurt her delicacy as much as her tenderness, and she would have given worlds, had she possessed them, to recall the time when she could have afforded consolation to Oscar, and convinced him that solely as a friend she regarded him. The colonel was not discouraged by her coldness. He was in the habit of conquering difficulties, and doubted not that he should overcome any she threw in his way. He sometimes, as if by chance, contrived to meet her in her rambles. His conversation was always amusing, and confined within the limits she had prescribed. But his eyes, by the tenderest expression, declared the pain he suffered from this prescription, and secretly pleased Adela as it convinced her of the implicit deference he paid to her will. Some weeks had elapsed since Oscar's voluntary exile from Woodlawn, and sanguine as were the colonel's hopes, he found without a stratagem they would not be realized, at least as soon as he expected. Fertile in invention, he was not long in concerting one. He followed Adela one morning into the garden, and found her reading in the arbor, she laid aside the book at his entrance, and they chatted for some time on indifferent subjects. The colonel's servant at last appeared with a large packet of letters, which he presented to his master, who, with a hesitating air, was about putting them into his pocket, when Adela prevented him. "'Make no ceremony, colonel,' she said, with me. "'I shall resume my book till you have perused your letters.' The colonel bowed for her permission and began. Her attention was soon drawn from her book by the sudden emotion he betrayed. He started and exclaimed, Oh, heavens, what a wretch! Then, as if suddenly recollecting his situation, looked at Adela, appeared confused, stammered out a few inarticulate words, and resumed his letter. When finished, he seemed to put it into his pocket, but in reality dropped it at his feet for the basest purpose. He ran over the remainder of the letters, and rising, entreated Adela to excuse his leaving her so abruptly to answer some of them. Soon after his departure, Adela perceived an open letter lying at her feet. She immediately took it up with an intention of returning to the house with it. When the sight of her own name in capital letters, and in the well-known hand of Fitzalan, struck her sight, she threw the letter on the table. A universal tremor seized her. She would have given any consideration to know why she was mentioned in a correspondence between Belgrave and Fitzalan. Her eye involuntarily glanced at the letter. She saw some words in it which excited still more strongly her curiosity. It could no longer be repressed. She snatched it up and read as follows. To Colonel Belgrave, you accuse me of insensibility to what you call the matchless charms of Adela, an accusation I acknowledge I merit. 
but why because I have been too susceptible to those of another, which in the fond estimation of a lover, at least, appear infinitely superior. The general's offer was certainly a most generous and flattering one, and has gratified every feeling of my soul, by giving me an opportunity of sacrificing, at the shrine of love, ambition, and self-interest. My disinterested conduct has confirmed me in the affections of my dear girl, whose vanity I cannot help thinking a little elevated by the triumph I have told her she obtained over Adela. But this is excusable indeed, when we consider the object I relinquished for her. Would to heaven the general was propitious to your wishes. It would yield me much happiness to see you, my first and best friend, in possession of a treasure you have long sighed for. I shall no doubt receive a long lecture from you for letting the affair relative to Adela be made known. But, Faith, I could not resist telling my charmer. Heaven grant discretion may seal her lips. If not, I suppose I shall be summoned to formidable combat with the old general. Adieu. And believe me, dear Colonel, ever yours, Oscar Fitzalan. Wretch! cried the agitated Adela, dropping the letter, which it is scarcely necessary to say was an infamous forgery, in an agony of grief and indignation. Is this the base return we meet, for our wishes to raise you to prosperity? Oh, cruel Fitzalan! Is it Adela? who thought you so amiable, and who never thoroughly valued wealth, till she believed it had given her the power of conducing to your felicity, whom you hold up as an object of ridicule, for unfeeling vanity to triumph over. Wounded pride and tenderness raised a whirl of contending passions in her breast. She sunk upon the bench, her head rested on her hand, and sighs and tears burst from her. She now resolved to inform Fitzalan she knew the baseness of his conduct, and sting his heart with keen reproaches, now resolved to pass it over in silent contempt. While thus fluctuating, the colonel softly advanced and stood before her. In the tumult of her mind she had quite forgotten the probability of his returning, and involuntarily screamed and started at his appearance. By her confusion she doubted not but he would suspect her of having perused the fatal letter. Oppressed by the idea, her head sunk on her bosom, and her face was covered with blushes. "'What a careless fellow I am!' said the colonel, taking up the letter, which he then pretended to perceive. He glanced at Adela. "'Curse it,' continued he. "'I would rather have had all the letters read than this one.' "'He suspects me,' thought Adela. Her blushes faded, and she fell back on her seat, unable to support the oppressive idea of having acted against the rules of propriety. Belgrave flew to support her. Loveliest of women, he exclaimed, and with all the softness he could assume, what means this agitation? I have been suddenly affected, answered Adela, a little recovering, and rising, she motioned to return to the house. Thus, answered the colonel, you always fly me. But go, Miss Honeywood, I have no right, no attraction, indeed, to detain you. Yet be assured, and he summoned a tear to his aid, while he pressed her hand to his bosom, a heart more truly devoted to you than mine you can never meet. But I see the subject is painful, and again I resume the rigid silence you have imposed on me. Go, then, most lovely and beloved, and since I dare not aspire to a higher, Allow me at least the title of your friend. 
Most willingly, said Adela, penetrated by his gentleness. She was now tolerably recovered, and he prevailed on her to walk instead of returning to the house. She felt soothed by his attention. His insidious tongue dropped manna. He gradually stole her thoughts from painful recollections. The implicit respect he paid her will flattered her wounded pride, and her gratitude was excited by knowing he resented the disrespectful mention of her name at Fitzalan's letter. In short, she felt esteem and respect for him, contempt and resentment for Oscar. The colonel was too penetrating not to discover her sentiments, and too artful not to take advantage of them. Had Adela indeed obeyed the real feelings of her heart, she would have declared against marrying. But pride urged her to a step which would prove to Fitzalan his conduct had not affected her. The general rejoiced at obtaining her consent, and received a promise that for some time she should not be separated from him. The most splendid preparations were made for the nuptials, but though Adela's resentment remained unabated, she soon began to wish she had not been so precipitate in obeying it. An involuntary repugnance rose in her mind against the connection she was about forming, and honor alone kept her from declining it forever. Her beloved friend, Mrs. Marlowe, supported her throughout the trying occasion, and in an, and in an inauspicious hour, Adela gave her hand to the perfidious Belgrave. About a fortnight after her nuptials, she heard from some of the officers of Oscar's illness. She blushed at his name. Faith, cried one of them, Mrs. Marlowe is a charming woman. It is well he got into such snug quarters. I really believe elsewhere he would have given up the ghost. Poor fellow, said Adela, sighing heavily, yet without being sensible of it. Belgrave rose, he caught her eye. A dark frown lowered on his brow, and he looked as if he would pierce into the recesses of her heart. She shuddered, and for the first time felt the tyranny she had imposed upon herself. As Mrs. Marlowe chose to be silent on the subject, she resolved not to mention it to her, but she sent every day to invite her to Woodlawn, expecting by this to hear something of Oscar, but she was disappointed. At the end of a fortnight, Mrs. Marlowe made her appearance. She looked pale and thin. Adela gently reproved her for her long absence, trusting this would oblige her to allege the reason of it, but no such thing. Mrs. Marlowe began to converse on indifferent subjects. Adela suddenly grew peevish, and sullenly sat at her work. In a few days after Mrs. Marlowe's visit, Adela, one evening immediately after dinner, ordered the carriage to the cottage. By this time she supposed Oscar had left it and flattered herself in the course of conversation she should learn whether he was perfectly recovered ere he departed. Proposing to surprise her friend, she stole by a winding path to the cottage, and softly opened the parlour door. But what were her feelings when she perceived Oscar sitting at the fireside with Mrs. Marlowe, engaged in a deep conversation? She stopped, unable to advance. Mrs. Marlowe embraced and led her forward. The emotions of Oscar were not inferior to Adela's. He attempted to rise, but could not. A glance from the expressive eyes of Mrs. Marlowe, which seemed to conjure him not to yield to a weakness which would betray his real sentiments to Adela, somewhat reanimated him. He rose and tremblingly approached her. "'Allow me, madam,' cried he, to—' The sentence died unfinished on his lips. He had not power to offer congratulations on an event 
which had probably destroyed the happiness of Adela, as well as his own. "'Oh, a truce with compliments,' said Mrs. Marlowe, forcing herself to assume a cheerful air. "'Prithee, good folks, let us be seated, and enjoy this cold evening the comforts of a good fire.' She forced the trembling, the almost fainting Adela to take some wine, and by degrees the flutter of her spirits and Oscars abated. But the sadness of their countenances, the anguish of their souls, increased. The cold formality, the distant reserve they both assumed, filled each with sorrow and regret. So pale, so emaciated, so woe-begone did Fitzalan appear, so much the son of sorrow and despair, that had he half-murdered Adela, she could not at that moment have felt for him any other sentiments than those of pity and compassion. Mrs. Marlowe, in a laughing way, told her of the troubles she had had with him. For which, I assure you, said she, he rewards me badly. For the moment he was enlarged from the nursery, he either forgot or neglected all the rules I had laid down for him. Pray do join your commands to mine, and charge him to take more care of himself. I would, most willingly, cried Adela, if I thought they would influence him to do so. Influence, repeated Oscar emphatically. Oh, heavens! Then starting up, he hurried to the window, as if to hide and to indulge his melancholy. The scene he viewed from it was dreary and desolate. It was now the latter end of autumn, the evening was cold, a savage blast howled from the hills, and the sky was darkened by a coming storm. Mrs. Marlowe roused him from his deep reverie. I am sure, said she, the prospect you view from the window can have no great attractions at present. And yet, cried he, there is something sadly pleasing in it. The leafless trees, the fading flowers of autumn, excite in my bosom a kind of mournful sympathy. They are emblems to me of him whose tenderest hopes have been disappointed. But unlike him, they, after a short period, shall again flourish with primeval beauty. Nonsense, exclaimed Mrs. Marlowe. Your illness has affected your spirits, but this gloom will vanish long before my orchard reassumes its smiling appearance, and happily attracts another smart redcoat to visit an old woman. Oh, with what an enthusiasm of tenderness, cried Oscar, shall I ever remember the dear, the dangerous moment I first entered this cottage. Now, no flattery, Oscar said Mrs. Marlowe. I know your fickle sex too well to believe I have made a lasting impression. Why, the very first fine old woman you meet at your ensuing quarters will, I dare say, have similar praise bestowed on her. No, replied he, with a languid smile. I can assure you solemnly, the impression which has been made on my heart will never be effaced. He stole a look at Adela. Her head sunk upon her bosom, and her heart began to beat violently. Mrs. Marlowe wished to change the subject entirely. She felt the truest compassion for the unhappy young couple, and had fervently desired their union, but since irrevocably separated, she wished to check any intimation of a mutual attachment, which now could answer no purpose but that of increasing their misery. She rung for tea, and endeavoured by her conversation to enliven the tea-table. The effort, however, was not seconded. "'You have often,' cried she, addressing Adela, as they again drew their chairs round the fire, "'desired to hear the exact particulars of my life. 
unconquerable feelings of regret hitherto prevented my acquiescing in your desire. But as nothing better now offers for passing away the hours, I will, if you please, relate them. You will oblige me by doing so, cried Adela. My curiosity, you know, has been long excited. End of chapter 12 Recording by Cassiopeia Sparks